Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, and all sorts of film watchers in between. Welcome back to Girl Press's Play. Um, first of all, I would like to apologize for missing last week with an episode. A couple things came up and I was working on two different films. Yes, two is the right number. And uh, things just got a little scrambled. So I had to just kind of backtrack and get back to work. But I appreciate y'all sticking with me and coming back for a brand new episode. So I feel like when discussing remakes, I feel like one topic that's always interesting to look into is films that people didn't realize were remakes. And this came up when I rediscovered Last of the Mohicans because my boyfriend is very obsessed with two things, history and early 90s Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> you could talk to him about both of those things until the cows come home. And what's interesting is looking at the 1936 version and the 1992 version, there's obvious differences one decides that it's okay to cast white actors in Native American roles while the other one doesn't. I think we can all guess which one that is. But both of these films really make me think of the idea of looking at progress, not just within the film itself, but within the filmmaking process as a whole. And today we brought over the awesome, awesome duo of Elliot Herman and Trevor Newland of Film Detectives to take a look at these two films and see how far we've come and yet how far we have to go. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take a look at 1936's Last of the Mohicans, directed by George B. Seltz, and its 1992 remake from director Michael Mann. Mohawks, take him in tribe, make him blood brother. Moore, he was born a Huron. I'd better rifle against a powder horn, he's still a Huron. On pale face squaws. What? Go! Let him alone! Stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. Academy Award winner, Daniel Day-Lewis. Madeline Stowe. The Last of the Mohicans. Trevor and Elliot met while working together in the film industry. They found a mutual love for classic movies and decided to team up and create a podcast about them, which became Film Detectives, a podcast focusing on some of the more elusive directors of our time covering everyone from Satoshi Khan to Wim Wenders to John Borman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Elliot Herman and Trevor Newlin of Film Detectives. Hello. Thank you guys hello. for stopping Good by the show. Here. Appreciate hello, it. Hello, hello. Thank you. Hello, Thank you. <laughs> so always the most important question that I ask, especially on this season, what did we think of these movies? Did we like them? Did we hate having to watch them? Were we intrigued? <laughs> Well, well, I love I loved them. Uh personally, I don't know about you Trevor. What about you? <laughs> well, I mean, I was I was talking to you before we hopped on and I was saying, you know, it's crazy I've never seen Last of the Mohicans. It's such a, you know, a, a film that's just regarded in such a high level by so many uh critiques and also individuals that have seen it. And I was like, you know, it's crazy I've never seen it, but I actually I really enjoyed it. I had a fun time with it. Yeah, and also for me, I think just 
being a Michael Mann film uh, fan, I really enjoyed uh, seeing him go and delve more into uh, portraying Native Americans on screen because a lot of his films, you know, like are very action packed blockbuster type of films is uh, most notably Heat. Those of you uh, who have seen Heat, like it's one of his grand opuses. It was nice to finally get around to seeing this. And it reminded me of like a Ter- Terrence Malick film, lyrical port, like poet. Uh, poem of there's something uh, very pensive about it too yeah. i see where you get the terrence malick shades because i feel like even mm-hmm. like miami vice and collateral and public mm-hmm. enemies there's something very like clear Grungy. and constantly moving about yeah. them and they're mm-hmm. great movies mm-hmm. but there's something very pensive about the last of the mohicans yeah it, it's it's like sort of like you don't know who to also root for in the film which i thought was really mm-hmm. interesting because you know, it takes the side of the British uh, hiring, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis's character. And they're fighting basically the colonialists, uh, like uh, the French, the Americans, you know, so uh, the French and the Indians. So it was, it's really interesting to see the other side of it, but you feel for both sides. That's the thing with this film. I have to ask if either of you knew, obviously the Michael Mann version is based on the book by James Fenimore Cooper, but I have to ask if either of you knew there was an original, quote unquote, Last of the Mohicans from the 30s before that iconic Daniel Day-Lewis running with his long hair flowing in the wind. Yeah, I I knew about it. I had never seen it, but uh, I have now seen a good majority of it. And I'll I'll have to say it's... uh, it's definitely fit for the time that it came out. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a very nice say, way of saying that the filmmakers did some stuff in the 30s that they thought was fine back then. But if you showed it to anyone now, their jaws would be on the floor with how problematic it all is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like back in the 30s, we weren't as advanced as we are today, just uh, intellectually. And also the awareness now of all different races, religions, and cultures. Great, And the fact that we now have communication, uh, the technology that we have mm-hmm. with communication has really allowed us to talk about the issues that were, you know, they weren't really talking about those issues back in the 30s and 40s and, and mm-hmm. 50s. It wasn't until like really the 60s that we really started to get more of a cultural revolution with, you know, uh, the wars that were being fought and also, uh, you know, civil rights and also just people wanting equality for all and And, to be, have a voice in the arts and in society. And also I feel like they didn't see that. They definitely didn't see it as issues at all during that time as well. It, it mm-hmm. wasn't regarded as, you know, oh, we're doing something very bad here. What are people going to think? They just thought that was, you know, normal for the time, which, of course, nowadays, like Elliot was saying, we're a lot more, as people say, woke yeah. <laughs> to, take a, woke to take a word out of out of this this current generation's vocabulary. <laughs> we're a lot more we're a lot more aware of what's going on and we understand and can grasp that what was done in the past although you know it's art you know it had it had a place at the at the same time it's like well 
maybe we should approach it a little bit differently. And that's, you know, that's what I love about this version of Last of the Mohicans is that the Native Americans actually, they, they weren't looked at, you know, as like dumb and like savages. They were given very, very mm, important yeah. roles throughout the film. Well, it also makes me wonder because the original 1936 version was made during the Hayes production codes when there were like mm. super, super strict morality laws about what could and couldn't be shown on screen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like films either went one of two ways. They either went super, super simplified like Last of the Mohicans or they did something like I'm blanking on the name of the film. I, I think I know Garbo what you're talking film, about. She's like having an affair with this guy and then it alludes to it simply by her like closing her blinds or something like that and it's very Mm -hmm. much like a very creative and artsy way of skirting Mm -hmm. around the morality code so it does make me wonder if the 1936 version was made in the 60s or 70s like you said when we were a little more culturally aware of things and also when the production code was finally tossed aside by hollywood Mm -hmm. it does make me wonder what that older version of the film i should say would be like you know yeah also i i find it interesting that in a lot of american western films through the 60s through the 70s even they still you know you started to see mexican as well as native americans have more of a voice in the films but still they were sort of being portrayed as the villains which and the, you know, the white American hero comes to save the day in the end all the time. And it's like a st- very stereotypical Western archetype that kind of follows throughout like Sergio Leone films, um, some of the Westerns with John Wayne. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it. And but like there's always like sometimes the, there would be like an occasional hero that would be Native American and stuff. And those were the times where I felt like, okay, this is cool because it, it's no longer they're being, you know, they're being portrayed as the villain. It's the same with how the Chinese were also portrayed in earlier films. Mm-hmm. You know, they're now being the heroes. I mean, most recently Shang-Chi that just came out and we have our yeah. first Marvel hero, you know, I'm still waiting for a Native American Marvel. The fact that, we're in a time now, like kind of the sins of the past, like need to be rewrote and we need to evolve so that we can make better art and better films too. Because when you include everyone in films and, and your art and your culture, you just get a more advanced culture and an advanced world to live in. That's how I see it. That's such a great point. I almost wish that was like prompted by the last question. I'm <laughs> okay, I'll ask. bring it up. I'll bring it back. <laughs> yeah, we'll forget, we'll forget you said it. Just, nine just minutes and three seconds, guys. No, that was a beautiful <laughs> Thank <you so> way. <laughs> that was yeah. a beautiful ending to that question. I <laughs> highly appreciate all of those thoughts and I completely agree. We're going to break the rules a little bit because I know mm. this is technically not an original and a remake, but... You guys over at Film Detectives had a very interesting episode comparing Citizen Kane and Mank Mm -hmm. and showing how watching the two of them in tandem really gave like a deeper context, not only to the film of Citizen Kane, but then watching Citizen Kane gives you a deeper context to Mank and showing Mm -hmm. how everything Mm -hmm. was put together. Mm -hmm. Do you think generally with remakes, especially where the original film is kind of problematic and maybe a little bit too much of its time Mm -hmm. and the remake does a little bit of a better job of representation, do you think it's important to watch those two together or do you think it's okay to watch the 1936 version and the 1992 version just on their own and 
kind of take them as two separate things. I think you can acquire a bigger appreciation for the work and just seeing how much not just, you know, growing as like cultural society and everything like that, but also as filmmakers and artists. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think definitely. watching those watching those two films together just gives you that greater appreciation and kind of see like where we started, especially if you watch like, you know, the one from the 30s, The Last of the Mohicans, and then you watch this one, you can still see some influence from the one in the 30s. But, you know, it's just it's on a whole nother level. This one I felt was a lot more Hollywood. I am sure you both would agree with that. And just the, the oh, yeah, giant, definitely. you know, set pieces and battles and it kind of reminded the, it reminded me of like a ro- romance novel, too, because like it had those, <laughs> you know, Daniel Day-Lewis in front of a waterfall with Cora and he's hu- kissing her. And like and it was oh, like and then the soundtrack, the, the music. I know. Exactly. And the mu- and the music just kind of add to the sort of camp of it all. But mm. um, the battle sequences, though, were insane. I mean, it was like just the brutality of war. Michael Mann really portrayed this very well and I felt was more historically accurate to the time period. You know, they weren't having like giant explosions like these felt like actual cannon explosions. The cannon, when it hits the freaking fortress at uh, Fort, was it Fort Hudson, I think? Uh, Fort, uh, uh, Fort William Henry. I Fort only William know that Henry, because yeah. my boyfriend is obsessed with Last of the Mohicans <laughs> and American history. So like when it hits that the and and those men get like basically obliterated that's really what was happening back then you know because that's why i felt like a lot of action films don't really get right is the amount of concussive force that an explosion has you know like a it goes off next to a hero and then he's like oh i'm i'm fine but no it's yeah like, mm-hmm. it's more damaging than that and i felt like this film really portrayed war in that respect very historically accurate yeah and i was going to say also and on the historical side you know you have it's the french and indian war that eventually you know leads to the american revolution at the end of all this once they signed the treaty and i feel like that was captured really well i mean the 1930s version i was telling elliot before we started it was, it was, it was more like campy it seemed more like a you know almost like a silent film type of thing even though it wasn't a silent film just the way mm-hmm. it was kind of presented and, and it, it went about itself. And this felt a lot more gritty and real, which which makes sense. You know, as you as we go forward in time, of course, technology is going to get better. The cameras are going to get better. The special effects are going to get better. But also the storytelling in general and really, you know, pulling back and looking at, you know, how Native Americans were during that war and what they went through and how smart they were and knowledgeable they were and helpful they were. Uh, it actually makes me think of something, uh, another film called Wind Talkers. I don't know if either of you have ever seen it. Yes. Oh, I've heard of it. No. It's one of those like in my queue movies that I've just never gotten it's around to. It's such a fun, I believe, is it, it's not Nicolas Cage's in it, is it? Is it Nicolas Cage? I think Cage? Nicolas Cage I feel like it's it. Bruce Willis. Or I'm going to hop Willis. on the IMDb. Yeah, I was about to check actually. Real quick. But yeah, they, they oh, use. Oh, no, you're right. It's Nicolas Cage. Yep, it, it is, is Nicolas a Nicolas Cage, Cage movie. Yeah, I mean it's one of his one of his best besides, of course, National Treasure, and I don't care what anybody says about those. Oh my god, I love National Treasure. We're gonna be best friends. That is one of my favorite movies ever. So good, but yeah, I mean, even in that movie, you came out in two thousand two. You have the Native Americans that are used. They're used to basically their coding are used to help decode like German attacks, pretty much. And they're it's cool to see that here we have a movie that takes place. I forget what war it is that they're uh, they're dealing with in Wind Talkers, but you know. 
know, here we have the Seven Years' War, basically, with the French and British colonists that are there along with the Indians. But it shows that, you know, they are intelligent. And you don't get that out near as much, of course, from the 30s one. And we were, you know, the original question was about, do you think you should watch them both together? And I think, like I said earlier, and what Elliot was kind of reiterating as well, is that you just get a bigger appreciation for the work and also a better understanding of truly what went on at that time uh, in history overall. Yeah, I also think what's very interesting is you can tell with the 30s version, it's very much they went out to like, I don't know, the San Fernando Valley or (laughs) like, you know, Griffith Park or something. And they shot some of the woodsy stuff near there. And then they went back to the studio and filmed everything else and call it a day. Yeah. Whereas in the 92 version from Michael Mann, I will say that they didn't film in New York, but interestingly enough, they shot in North Carolina in like the Blue Ridge Mountain area. It's so beautiful. And it's probably what was more, at least visually, historically accurate. Because I was actually Mm -hmm. just up at Lake George with my boyfriend's family last year. And even probably by the 90s, it was like built up and there's lots of cute little like hotels and Mm -hmm. ski resorts and filming around all of that stuff or the actual Fort. Uh, William Henry still stands was probably next to impossible. So I always find that interesting too, when it's not necessarily about textbook historical accuracy, but more about, okay, what's going to evoke the history and the time and, you know, the place that we're trying to tell the story about. Yeah. I mean, it it adds to the realism and us believing we're uh, being sucked into this world of, you know, like really back then they really did not have much. I mean, you're really just fighting to survive or to just make a living in any way you can. Um, you know, I, I thought it was also interesting because Michael Mann version reminded me of John Adams, the series with uh, Paul Giamatti talks about Another the birth of one. our, you know, it, it talks about John Adams and his rise to power as uh, our president. And, you know, you look at like the old shots of uh, Washington, D.C. or even Philadelphia and and it's mm-hmm. like there's nothing, you know, it's it's just rural land. They just are like, oh, let's just put a building there, you know, <laughs> you know, no strip malls, no anything like <laughs> that. You know, it's just we have a building just so we can survive the winter. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I found that nature really plays a huge role in a lot of these films where, of course, Native Americans are portrayed on screen because they have that tie to nature and the fact mm-hmm. that we've kind of lost that as, you know, after like the American, like the uh, American colonization happened and, you know, Native Americans were kind of pushed out of their land. Um, we lost that kind of connection with the earth. We became more of an industrial society. And it's always like we see mm-hmm. this in many films where, it's always the industrial complex fighting mother nature and how, how do we exist and or coexist with one another in harmony. And you could even throw that into citizen Kane. Like we talked about. Yeah. The industrial world is beginning to boom. That's when the the newspaper is, you know, becoming a a big thing and all that at the, at the time of that film, which Mm -hmm. revolutionized, uh, Cain really just all the and but the thing is it always brings it back to the one human nature uh uh which in essence is he he lacks love he lacks Mm -hmm. that connection with love and has lost that as he's grown older and more bitter and gone through life and 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 become uh greedy and 
just removed from the world itself and not caring about another person other than himself. Yeah, and and you could throw that even back again back to last of the Mohicans with the French and the the mm-hmm. uh, British colonizers there that mm-hmm. they want more land, they want more land, they want that land. It, it's it's that that power hungry struggle of of wanting more and more and more and not being content and and return with that they're poisoning the land and the mm-hmm. people that originally lived on the land, which were the Native Americans. And then because of that, we get a character like Magua, who is just out for revenge because he feels like he's he needs to enact his revenge on the British, uh, as well as the British general and his daughters, Cora and uh, who's the, her sister. Uh, so like hate and greed breed, you know, the revenge factor. And it, it's almost like karma comes back to play in a sense. And Hero has to mm-hmm. deal with that. At least Daniel Day-Lewis's character has to deal with that through the film. You know, it's always kind of chasing him through the film, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. And what's interesting about that film too is technically the good guys win, but I feel like it ends on such a somber mm-hmm. note of we lost the, we maybe won the battle, but we lost the war. Mm-hmm. I just think of that, you know, really, really wide shot where it's just the three of them on this giant cliff facing the vast nature of it mm-hmm. all, kind of contemplating how one day it's all mm-hmm. going to get conquered. And it's a beautiful ending, but it's also yeah, it's a really depressing ending. <laughs> and I mean, we can see that today. We can see that with deforestation and, you know, pushing native tribes out of their native land and all of that. So. Maybe it's also just that with all of the climate change stuff going on, like it's, it's just it's painfully funny relevant. Like, uh, you, it reminded me of another movie. Oh, that's a good uh, one. That's a really good one. Mel Gibson's hmm. uh, Apocalypto. It ended very much. It ended very much the same way because you know the hero gets his family back, but then in the distance you see the ships coming towards the the new land, and you know what's going to happen. They're going to bring disease, famine, and basically conquer their territory and and basically kill everyone. So it's like that ominous, like impending doom that is on the horizon that no matter what we try to do, it's kind of slightly there, like out in the distance and just around the corner type of thing, which mm-hmm. is, I, I thought really interesting that both films kind of end in a similar That's an way. interesting point. I got to rewatch that. Not to give Apocalypto. anything away. It's been a very long time since I've seen that. And as problematic as one, Mel Gibson can be, that is like yeah. a truly <laughs> detail-oriented... I think they even speak the native... I forget if it's Aztec or Inca. I don't want to name it and sound mm-hmm. ridiculous. But um, they don't just speak Spanish. They speak the native language. And a lot of detail <laughs> went into like the dress and different cultural practices and stuff. So I got to rewatch that. It's a good movie. And it, cause that felt like the whole time I was watching last of the Mohicans, it, it felt like Mel Gibson kind of got influenced from this particular film uh, and just kind of did like his own version of it, but went deeper into the world of the native world actually. And so in itself, you know, so the Aztec and the Incan world. So that just rural uh, connection with, nature and yeah. having to survive in in like a, a really harsh world with really just bows and arrows and that's it <laughs> you know i thought in last of the mohicans like it was interesting that the native americans were 
adopting a lot of the guns that they were given by mm-hmm. the French or by the British. So then it's like they're almost being assimilated. It's it's it brings up the question. It's like, do you assimilate into the culture or do you uh, keep your own morals and your own culture alive still? Because that's there's the, there's always been that fight for keeping traditions alive and also keeping your, the culture going of the native mm-hmm. Americans. And, but then like they're having to also assimilate somewhat into uh, Western society, sort of modernize in a way too. But it, it's like always been that kind of um, yin and yang again. It's all about balance guys. It's really Agreed. all about balance. <laughs> Agreed, sir. Um, so I, when doing research for this episode, I found this really interesting article that the actor Russell Means, who played, and I know I'm going to butcher this, uh, Chingachgook, who plays basically uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's adoptive Native American father in the film. He gave like a retrospective interview about the making of the film, and he kind of Mm -hmm. talked about the double-edged sword of the fact that it was really moving the needle in the right direction in terms of Native American representation on screen, but some of the practices of filmmaking weren't that great. So, for example, he talked about all of the Native Americans being kind of siphoned off Mm -hmm. to one section of holding. For those of you who don't know, holding is where like the cast kind of stays in between takes and just little things like that where he was like yeah I'm really happy that I was a part of this movie but there were certain parts of making the film that didn't really sit well with me as a native person do you think when watching a film like this a person has to kind of keep in the back of their head how it was made or do you think the movie should just be seen as what it is and in this case like what it does in terms of moving the needle of representation in the right direction. I think that's kind of tough because I think it kind of depends on where you're coming from. For us, right, as actors, directors, Mm -hmm. writers, artists, we're we're looking at more of that technical stuff and and the backstory of of how things are created. But if you're just a regular audience member, I'd say, you know, just going to see a film and you want to see this film, I feel like you don't think about or, or feel as much about that unless it in today's world unless it you know breaks on the internet or something comes out about the film for example most re- recently with all the mm-hmm. alec baldwin stuff uh that that, that tragedy there yeah. right you know people don't really understand or i don't think care which is you know not it's it's not a, it's not a good thing nor a bad thing i feel like because it it kind of just depends on on the person and the individual um, that, you know, what goes on on a set and how those things are. I'm, I'm glad that it's kind of becoming more of a uh, out there thing now where people were just the normal everyday person is aware of how sets work. And especially with AOTSI and all that stuff going on, it really came to the forefront for people that, you know, maybe don't know how a film set works and how those things go into it. And they just see the final product. So I hope that kind of gives yeah, people... Definitely. And I did like maybe look into more of their favorite films and see kind of like how the process is. And especially if it's something that's, you know, going for historical accuracy uh, with, you know, w- whether it's battles or the, or the, you know, the cultures that are involved, the people, whatever it may be that they can find an appreciation for that. But I also feel like at the same time, a lot of people, you know, just don't care, which that it's it's sad that that's the case, but I mean, a lot of people just go to see a film to be entertained or whatever, you know, whatever emotion they want to feel. Um, but 
I definitely think that if you're an artist in any type of, of, of the way, you definitely probably look deeper into, uh, or maybe you're just, you know, really into the topic. For example, you said your boyfriend's really into history and loves the last of the Mohicans. So like, he's going to want to see like all the details and everything that went into this, this film that created it to see, you know, how accurate it may be or, or not accurate or, you know, what they did and, and hear those stories from set and how the, how the native Americans were treated that were, you know, used and all that type of stuff. So uh, for, for, to make a long answer shorter, I, I think it honestly just depends on like how you view art and how you view, view your media in, in a way. I think that's ultimately what's going to decide how you overall take in uh, some type of product. Yeah. And that brings up an interesting point of not to completely objectify artistic pursuits or anything like that. But when you think of a film or a TV show or a podcast, really, like it's a product that you're putting out for Mm -hmm. consumers. And I feel like media is one of the few products out there where like, for example, no one really cares how their Windex is made (laughs) or how like... I don't know, their MacBook is made, but they really, really care or they want to know something about how their films were made. You think of behind the scenes content, you know, getting posted all over the Internet and stuff. So it does kind of bring up the exceptionalism Mm -hmm. of art and especially like media being put out into the world. Yeah. I mean, like we're in an age where you can't really I I mean, the, the fact that we have information available to us i've always been of the opinion like if i want to know something i'll search for the answer i'll i'll look it up i'll go out there you know yeah and it's always we're always um with 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 films it's like yeah kind of hit and miss with with the audience members because they Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. a certain demographic that will just be like okay we just want a, a a blockbuster popcorn type movie that just throws a bunch of action into it there's not much I mean, there might be a a pretty decent story to it, but, you know, and, and maybe the acting is great, hopefully, but it's, you know, whether it has like an artistic value to it, that's kind of really up to whoever watches it. And also, and, and I like that we're in a form of media that is that, um, it, it, you know, it's like looking at a painting, you know, like one person looks at it one way and another person will look at it a different way. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, like, you have everyone has their own opinion on things, which is that's the great thing to be in a free society to be able to make those opinions and make, you know, make your voice heard and, you know, take what art you are seeing or what particular films you're seeing in and how do you apply that to your own life? How do you apply that to whether you're in in that business and how do you apply that to your own craft as well, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting you were talking about the blockbuster popcorn because I feel like a lot of people would look at this film and say this is a blockbuster. Like this is it, there's a lot of high action, there's romance, there's uh, deceit. Yeah. There, you know, there's there's a whole there's a whole character's journey there, Multi-layer. right? But then you could also look at this as a super historical film that tells a really important uh, time in our history. You know, if you pull back that, I feel like every film can have some type of and most most filmmakers do this they put that that meaning underneath you know the whatever you want to say the fireworks or whatever it may be right to that kind of moves the film along that the the mask mm-hmm. right and you could you could apply that to the last of the mohicans it could be either a blockbuster 
you know, if you're in that camp and you just want to, you know, go enjoy this is a, it's, a, I mean, it's a really entertaining film. It's got a, a love story in it. It's got a lot of action, a lot of, you know, killing because people love to see that in theater. And I mean, that that's true though. I mean, we, we as a society love violence. I mean, that's uh, just, Ching, that's Ching how it Cook's is. Axe is just ridiculous. Like him just like, Oh, it's crazy. Leveling people with it. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> this would make a, this would can we make, talk, can about, we talk the about the axe? This would make such an amazing like video game too. Like I was, I'm surprised they didn't have a video game for this, like Ghost of Tsushima type. You know? <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, but 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 besides the axe, yes. you can you can. It, it just depends ultimately. I feel like how you how you look at it. You know, is this a blockbuster to you, or is it a blockbuster and an even deeper meaning at, at a very important part in our you know, time as a society when a giant war broke out that eventually led to the creation of the Americas or the States more so. The Americas were already there, the States. That is a very interesting way because I never thought about the kind of duality of this movie in that way. Like it's a big blockbuster with with technically two love stories. So you get a two Ah. for the price of one. But yeah, there's like action and beautiful sceneries. But then it also is this very kind of what we were talking about before, like pensive, meditative, thoughtful, open-ended film about what it actually means to like belong to a place and to be of a place, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. Good on you, Michael Mann. Good on you. <laughs> so if you were going to recommend either of these films or these films as a, du- as a double feature to anyone... What would you tell people before watching either of these films? Not necessarily to warn them, but more <laughs> of like, out. oh, hey, here's some context <laughs> you should go you should go in with. I mean, there are 1936 when you may need to yeah. warn people about the yeah. whitewashing of Native American actors. Uh, I would say, yeah, just go in with uh, knowing what time period you're in when the films were made, because that heavily has a bearing on the cultural consciousness of the time. Um, and also the vision of the director and how he portrays people on screen or he or she portrays people on screen, um, go in with an open mind, but be aware that like, you know, there are films from the thirties and forties that, you know, do not hold up to today's standards of Mm -hmm. what you think, you know, is the, like what's between right and wrong actually, which is, it's, it's pretty amazing that it's the the film industry has come this far from where, like where it started, you know, and to where it is today. And we're still evolving, you know, thankfully, because, mm-hmm. you know, to reach a more perfect, you know, art form, like you have to be all inclusive. You have to include everyone in the decision and also the artistic vision of the film. And when you have that, then you have, then you'll have a masterpiece yeah, absolutely. of a film, you know, and you will hopefully it also resonates with the audience members that watch it that watch your film yeah i mean i think i would say pretty much the same thing i mean i think i think watching the 1930s film is a good lesson uh also it's it's you know it's it's cool to see how we're you know at the kind of a beginning of our our film journey uh, kind of how how it all started and just kind of seeing from that jump from the 30s to the 92 when the last of the Mohicans came out, the 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 one that people know about, not the other one, <laughs> uh, just just kind of seeing how you know in that time period how much we advanced and grew as yeah. 
as a society and also as artists and filmmakers and actors and just that's it, it and even today you know if we if we did another remake today just to see how much it would even grow even more and how much uh more specific we would get with with the native american people and and you know try to really hone in and create something beautiful that pays them respect and also pays uh the respect to that time in our our country when people were fighting and dying and losing lives to establish something that they thought would be better for people in the future they were fighting for our future basically yeah yeah absolutely most important question where can we find you two on the interwebs <laughs> well uh we're on where Instagram. would you like us to find you on the interwebs uh, i should specify we... <laughs> <laughs> www <laughs> <laughs> no uh well we're on spotify we're on apple itunes um we are also on stitcher we are all stitcher tuned in uh, and also you can, you can basically yeah. pretty much i'll go ahead Elliot. you're uh, good are you yeah, you, go this, you do the spiel. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you want to find Film Detectives, you can find us on Instagram at Film Detectives. You can also find us on TikTok at Film Detectives. You can find all of our episodes located there. Also, the Believe podcast uh, website, believe.com, Film Detectives. If you want to follow us separately, Elliot Herman Audio. Is mm-hmm. that correct, yes. Elliot? On Instagram. And then Trevor underscore Newland on Instagram as well. If you want to follow our uh, journeys through the artistic world of the film industry. Guys, thank you so much for stopping by. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you so much Likewise, for having Alana. us. We thank appreciate it. Us. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Elliot and Trevor for stopping by and engaging in a wonderful conversation about those two films. Be sure to follow them on Instagram and check out their podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you prefer to stream your podcasts. And definitely let us know what you think about this episode and what you think about these two movies. As always, we love, love, love to hear from you guys. So leave your comments on social media, support us on Patreon, where we have some fun discussions and polls and such, because you are the reason I do all of this, lovely listeners. With all that being said, tune in next week when we look at Infernal Affairs and The Departed with a very cool guest stunt coordinator, Scott Kashia. And until then, stay safe, stay alive, I will find you! (laughs) I had to slip that in somewhere. And keep watching movies. See you next time. much for listening be sure to check back every tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it special thanks to john f fariolo fencing llc mariano dwyer and helen rafferty 
For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl Presses Play.